you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. read through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are the inspirer of the word And we pray now that you would illuminate it to us. Would you give us clarity and would you press your word down into our hearts and lives, we ask, for your glory and our good. Amen. Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson has drawn a large following over the last number of years. And his book, 12 Rules for Life, is a worthwhile read. In fact, if you enjoy audiobooks, he reads the book himself. And there are a couple different points in the book where he is actually brought to the brink of tears. He's he's choking back tears, actually. One of these sections is dealing with some horrendous suffering that his friend went through. But the one where he gets the most worked up is actually in a section called Meaning as a Higher Good. His argument runs like this. He says that meaning emerges when impulses are regulated, organized, and unified. See, in contrast to doing what is expedient, Peterson challenges his readers to live meaningfully and full of purpose. He challenges them to to slow down, to be intentional. There is a problem with his argument, however, because when you turn the page, like literally the very next page, he writes this, meaning is something that comes upon you of its own accord. Now, we can follow meaning, he says, and he goes on to continue. It manifests itself. When it manifests itself, we can, we can follow it. But we cannot simply produce it as an act of will. Meaning signifies that we are in the right place at the right time. So the careful reader is, is justifiably wondering at this point, well, which is it? Is meaning something that just happens, that comes upon you? that you you merely interact with and move with when it happens? Or is it something that you actively press into? For Peterson, this is is a serious thing. He is in tears when he reads this section of how important it is to be pressing into meaning and purpose. But I'm, I'm left with this 
quandary. Because on the one hand, I'm left with an imperative, which is do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And yet, meaning is something I cannot generate from my own will. It's something that must come upon me. And so with that to say, I think that Peterson, because the name of his book, after all, is 12 Rules for Life, is really leaning towards the fact that you can generate meaning in some sense. And yet there's a tension there, a tension that he does not resolve. But it is this tension where he puts the emphasis on doing to find meaning that the Apostle Paul would have to disagree with, particularly in his letter to the Romans. Because he, Paul begins this letter by arguing that our main problem is not a lack of meaning or lack of purpose. Our main problem is that we deserve the wrath of God. So his argument begins in Romans 1.18, where he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, Paul declares our problem is not psychological disintegration. It's not a lack of meaning. But our problem is that we have committed treason against the creator of the universe. And moreover, this creator has revealed himself, clearly revealed himself, so that in, in every bit of nature, every single person, he says, is without excuse for the Greek geeks. It's unapologetus, no apologetic. There's no defense. Everybody knows. Everybody is culpable because he's revealed himself. So our problem is not psychological disintegration. It's not a lack of meaning or purpose, according to Paul. It is that we have committed treason against the creator who has revealed himself. See, there will be no one like Bertrand Russell who on the last day can say, why did you hide yourself so well, sir? Because God revealed himself. But thankfully, after Paul has laid out this argument that humanity's greatest problem is that we live in God's world and we deny him the place of God. We deny him worship and honor that God has provided, that God sent his son to be a sacrifice of atonement, to cover, to propitiate, to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. And that's what he picks up his argument in the next step in Romans 3.21, that through Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death, he's made a way. And now we can access God. And now we no longer can be under the wrath of God for those who repent and believe. And as Paul continues to unwind his argument throughout this book, he gives us the hope, what it looks like for Christian hope, those who are now justified. And that argument runs from chapter 5 to here in chapter 8. And here in this chapter, we really deal with the end. What we've said is the title of our sermon is, it is ultimately the Spirit who keeps us. So God who justifies and God who keeps. The Spirit who keeps us. So with that in mind, we'll look at our passage today under three headings. Who can be against us? What can separate us? And then who is for us? So with that, look again at verse 31 and 32 with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, I spent that moment to go back and show you Paul's argument beginning in Romans 1.18. Because I would argue that this... What do we do about these things? That these things is Paul's whole argument that runs back, starting at Romans 1.18. 
Oh, there's, there's definitely some specifics that are picked up in chapter 5 and dealing with the hope. There's some bracketing taking place in Paul's argument. And it reaches back definitely to last week's passage that God is the one who foreknows, who predestines, who calls, who justifies, who glorifies. But he's reaching back and pulling his whole argument forward. What do we say to these things? What do we say to this gospel that pronounces the bad news that we are all under the wrath of God? And yet that he sent his son to create a way to bring salvation to those who repent and believe. So Paul has done this. He's brought these things forward and he says that we can have peace with God for those who believe that Jesus died to be their sacrifice. So they can be justified. And we'll come back to that term later in this passage. But with that in mind, his rhetorical question here really could be turned around as a statement. You could read it this way. Since God is for us, no one and no thing can be against us. It's really a rather simple point. If God is for you, then nothing can stand against us. But you see, someone might say, well, how do you know that God is for you and that nothing can be against you? He's given us proof. He's giving us evidence. Because he gave his own son. Uh, That word gave up could, could really be translated delivered over, delivered up his own son in our place. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, this father giving over his son might ring a bell. Particularly if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham and his call to sacrifice, to give over his son Isaac. As one commentator noted, when you first are reading through Genesis, you get to chapter 22, and it says, Abraham, take your son, Isaac, your only son, and sacrifice him. There's nothing in the narrative that has prepared you for that. It is so out of left field, you kind of have to stop and reread. Did that just happen? Like, this is the son of promise. This is the son of miraculous birth. And all of a sudden, now he's supposed to sacrifice him? What is going on? It totally takes you by surprise. But part of the reason it takes you by surprise is Genesis' beautifully written narrative. And there's a little hint in verse 1 of chapter 22, which says God did this to test Abraham. The the issue was Abraham's faith, to prove his faith. Isaac was never really in any harm's way. God was testing Abraham's faith. And Abraham's faith becomes abundantly clear when Isaac says, "I, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, prophetically, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And yet, he gets all the way up and ties him to the wood. And he raises the knife before God calls out and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And they see a ram caught in a thicket. And of course, Genesis twenty-two fourteen, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Well, the fulfillment is being explained here. That God delivered over his son. He provided his son. Paul is saying here in our passage, indeed, the Lord has provided the sacrifice we need to satisfy the wrath of God. So how could we doubt his provision? How could we doubt his love, as he's going to go on to say in this passage? It is a powerful demonstration. But if we're honest, that language of delivered over does raise some questions. God delivered over his son? How are we supposed to process that? Many have called this divine child abuse. Uh, Famed atheist Richard Dawkins calls God a a long list of things, but a couple of the shorter lists is a petty, vindictive, bloodthirsty, genocidal, ethnic cleanser who also participates in divine child abuse. What are we to make of those claims? 
The text is clear. The father delivered over his son. Well, I'm going to let Jesus answer this question for us. There's many ways to do it, but I'm just going to quote Jesus in John 14, 9 through 11. He's responding to one of the disciples saying, show us the father. And he says, whoever's seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? These words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who is in me and dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Do you see that language of in fathers in the son and our our minds start to start to go into dissonance because we don't work really well with those types of things. But theologians have have called this perichoresis, the mutual indwelling of the spirit. Here's the important part. Is everything God does, he does indivisibly. It's called the indivisible operations of the Trinity. So let me break that down a little more for you. Indivisible, you can't split them apart, operations. So every time God acts, all three members of the Trinity are acting in different ways, but they're all acting. Everything that comes about comes about because it is from the Father and it is accomplished through the Son by the means of the Holy Spirit. This is classic Christian theology. So when God the Father delivered over Jesus, Jesus was the willingly sent one who was empowered and filled and brought and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not divine child abuse. Uh, And if you're someone who you live in Portland and you you maybe have friends or family or neighbors who would say these types of things, you can quote John 10, 18, very simple verse where Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So no, it is not divine child abuse. It is the work of the father from whom all things spring through the son by the spirit. That is how he is accomplishing these works. And God's delivering over of his son, the son's willingly going as the sent one, and the spirit's tying that together guarantees God's love for us. Which brings us to our next point. What can separate us? Verses 35 through 39. Take a look at these verses with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So after Paul has laid out the initial argument that if God is for us, nothing, no one can be against us, he then illustrates it in two ways. Uh, We'll come back to the second illustration, uh, or our last point, but we're looking at this second illustration, which is love, that, that there's an inseparable love that takes place here. It turns out that the children's song is exactly right, theologically precise. Nothing, nothing, no, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Again, it's a simple set of verses that if God is for us, nothing can separate us. His love has been set upon us and we cannot have his love removed. 
from us. But the problem is, because of our modern sensibilities, there are two things in this text which kind of ring odd to us in our day. The first difficulty we have is this, is that our culture and our world loves love. But we're also a little confused by love, if we're honest. I mean, you talk to your average person on the street, and they're going to say, well, yeah, of course God loves me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lovable person. I'm, I'm, I might even be kind of cute, right? Everybody loves love. And of course God is loving. I mean, that's what he does. That's his job, right? He's, he's loving. Well, D.A. Carson has an excellent little book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And he shows us that love is a little bit more complex than you might at first think. Partially because we use love in so many different ways. I love a good taco. And I love my wife. And those loves aren't exactly the same, right? I hope not. Well, Carson helps to suss this out with a brilliant illustration like this. He says, picture Charles and Susan walking down the beach, hand in hand. The sun is glistening off the water. And it radiates through Susan's hair. And Charles turns to Susan and he says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? It really depends, does it not? I mean, it it could mean simply that he's enraged with lust and he wants to go to bed with her. Given our modern society, that really is what it could mean. But let's say he has a modicum of decency. Let's, Let's say he has some character. He may mean, likely means, something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile arrests me from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair. Everything about you transfixes me. I love you. Well, Carson continues. What he most certainly does not mean when he says, I love you, is this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you should really be in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a herd of camels look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan seem charming. He most certainly does not mean that. Whatever he means, he doesn't mean that. But here's, here's, where, it, here's where it gets tricky. When we come to say God is love. And God loves you. And nothing will separate you from his love. Do we mean the same thing we mean about Susan the first time? Is is it like this? You mean everything to me. I I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation and repartee, your beauty, your smile. Everything about you transfixes me. Heaven is boring. I'm counting the seconds until you're with me. Is that what God means? I I don't know. After all, that is the sound of what a lot of popular Christianity sounds like. God can't live without you. A lot of worship songs certainly ring with that vibe. Oh, he loves me. Dear old God might be pretty vulnerable. Come, come Wednesday, he he's really can't wait till Sunday and those guitars bring out. I really need a song. I'm feeling rather lonely. No, whatever we do with God's love, we better not do that. We need to bring back the old Puritan word. That speaks of the attribute of God, his aseity. God is ase. He is from himself. 
He's so much from himself, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our attention. He is from himself. See, the problem is, if we are not very clear about what it means that God loves us, we start to misplace our picture of who God is. We start to change God into our image. So here's how Carson answers the question. He says, when God says he loves us, does not he mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, and the abominable personality. Morally speaking, your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not, not because you're attractive, but because it's my nature to love. And in the case of the elect, God adds this. I have set my affection on you. From before the foundation of the universe. Not, not because you're wiser or better or stronger, but because in grace, I chose you and I love you. And you will be mine and you will be transformed and nothing in creation can separate you from my love. Friend, if we don't understand God's love or right, we will rewire God and we will think not his thoughts after him, but we will create him in our own image. Someone we're rather comfortable with. So when Paul says that nothing and no one separates us from his love, it's not because we are good. It's because God is love. But that brings us to the second difficulty with this section. And that's the psalm that he quotes in verse 36. We read from it earlier, the whole psalm. Maybe it felt a little bit long, but did you catch the flow of that psalm? Tom Schreiner does a brilliant job of summarizing the flow of Psalm 44. It runs like this. You are the king, so we win. But God, you've rejected us. We're a laughingstock and a disgrace. We have not betrayed the covenant. It's not as though we've sinned, yet you've crushed us. We are being put to death all day long. Wake up and act, O oh Lord. Why are you sleeping? At first, you wonder, why in the world is Paul quoting this? I mean, it's, it's you when he says, for your sake. He's saying, God, for your sake, you're the one putting us to death. So how does this help his argument that God doesn't separate us? Well, because Paul is saying that none of these things that God allows, the persecution, distress, famine, sword, peril, none of those things will even separate us from the love of God. But it's actually one step more than that. It's that through those things, through the suffering, through the sword, through the peril, those are the means that God uses to guarantee that you grow in his love, to guarantee that you're kept. Now, this seems incredible, but that's why verse 37, Paul goes on to say, we are more than conquerors. It's not merely that we suffer those things and we get by. We suffer those things and we become more than conquerors. Those trials and the Spirit's ability to keep us through those trials prove us to be even more than conquerors. We super abound, as it were. This is the same idea that John is going to write in the book of the Revelation when Jesus' words, actually, he speaks to the church in Smyrna and he says, some of you are about to be tempted. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 of Revelation, Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. More than conquerors. Through death, through suffering, through the sword even. 
So last week, Matt had carried on this discussion about suffering. So I don't want to press into it here, but you can see how this whole chapter is weaving together and we really can't get away from the idea. But I do want to bring home just a couple of quick application points for us. There are Christians down through the years who have argued that this list of things does not include ourselves. So that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he lists off all of those things there, you know, famine, distress, nakedness, danger, sword. But that doesn't count us. So we are able to break away. We are able to turn and we are able to, to lose our salvation in that sense. But I would just say, Paul says nothing in life or death. That seems to include my life and my death. Otherwise, I don't know what to make of those terms. No, friends, it is impossible for somebody who has been spiritually reborn to lose their salvation, just as it is impossible to take one of these little ones and somehow fold them back up and stick them back in and undo gestation. It doesn't work that way. God will never lose his elect, his people. And part of why this is so important for the first readers was this. A few years before this letter was written, the emperor in Rome had removed all the Jews for their nationality and for their religious. He removed them. And so the church in Rome continued on and they had, they had developed certain habits because they no longer had their Jewish counterparts. And then the next emperor would come along and he let them back in. And so Paul writes this letter to, to say we have to have unity between Jew and Gentile. And he's, he's writing to cement their unity so then they will support him in his gospel work and hopefully send him off to Spain. So that's why this would have been so critically important for the first readers to see. And nothing, not an emperor who can rip your life away from you, rip your friends and your home away, nothing can separate you from God's love. And the similar things happen all around the world today. Uh, HarvardPolitics.com had an article recently on how religious persecution in China under Xi Jinping has dramatically increased since 2012. <laughs> the, the government, another article said, is actually starting to hire people to rat out their neighbors in house churches. More than that, if you want to be a registered church, you put a camera on the front of your pulpit as facial recognition software. And if you don't do it, they came and grabbed the pastor in the middle of the night and take him away, haul him off to jail. And yet, even with all that persecution... And the fact that China is officially an atheistic nation. The best estimates say that by 2030, they will likely have more Christians than the U.S. Can you imagine how much the Christians in China need this passage? How much they need to hear, if God is for us, who could be against us? What can separate us? Oh, the, the children's song is right. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. But with that in mind... I also want us to see is how this assurance is bound up with the church, corporate. Did you catch that? It's all plural. It's all us. The whole passage. Did you see it? God is for us. He spared not his own son, gave him up for us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's for us. It's a corporate reality. Your assurance is bound up with the local church. Paul wrote this letter to the first audience. And they would have had no questions, no blink, no hesitation. Of course, it's us. After I wrote it to the church in Rome, the church, our assurance is bound up with active membership in the local church. Now, I get it. Why there are sometimes hesitations and pauses. The, the list of reasons why that might not be comfortable are long. Some of them could be, well, I'm just a massively introverted person. Or maybe I'm, I'm really private and I just can't handle, or I'm, I'm really busy and my schedule's difficult. There's a hundred reasons we can have for not being 
members in the local church. But one response I would have to those statements would just be to challenge you long and hard to think about Paul's analogy of the body. How long does a hand survive when it is cut off from the body? How long does an ear survive if it's cut off from the body? Did you know that in the best case scenario, donor organs survive, depending upon the organ, somewhere between 6 and 30 hours? That's it. Paul didn't, I don't even think Paul realized just how potent his body analogy was, that we're part of the body. So Christian friend, we cannot claim to love Jesus and reject and neglect his bride. We cannot claim to be children of the king and yet functionally despise the brothers and sisters that he's put in our lives by refusing to walk out our discipleship with them. Now see, those Christians in persecuted countries like China, they only have one view of this text. My life must be lived out in the local church. That's the only way they have to understand this passage. And I just say practically, I would say this. Is if, if you or maybe you have friends or family who claim to be Christians, but they're not living out their discipleship in the local church, evangelize them. Oh, you do it in love and you pray for them and you pursue them. You do it in gentleness and with patience, but pursue them. Because we have no category for assurance of those outside of the local church. And that is one of the main arguments Paul's running through Romans 8 is assurance. And he ties it to the us. He ties it to the corporate reality. The for us. Which brings us to the last point. Who is for us? Look at verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you catch how the for us is like a hook that ties that whole section together? We know that God, the Father, is for us. Because Jesus is for us in his life, in his death, and in his interceding for us. This is why Matt, the other week, spoke about substitutionary atonement. It's for us. It's a substitute reality. So we won't go back into that now. But I want you to see the way that his argument flows. We know that God's for us because Jesus was for us. And if you tie this passage in with parallels in Ephesians 2, Jesus is for us and he lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. And Paul adds here, and he intercedes for us. He's our great high priest who is interceding. Notice what these verses do then. They're tying off chapter 8. How did chapter 8 begin? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you know? Because Christ is for us. That's a guarantee. Christ is for us. So there is no condemnation. He stands as our advocate interceding for us. Now, I said this was the first of the two illustrations. Did you catch all the language? It seems like very legal language, does it not? There's this language of bringing a charge, of condemnation. That's exactly what you're supposed to hear. You're supposed to hear and supposed to see almost a picture of this is the heavenly courtroom. This is the final judgment. And this is all legal language, forensic language that we're reading here. The picture is of the final court and God sitting on his heavenly throne on the last day of judgment. And God sits there and he will judge in perfect righteousness. There will be no mistrials. There will be no 
miscarriages of justice. The sentence passed that day will be flawless and it will be eternal. This is the final courtroom. And with that in mind, Paul says, if you are one for whom Jesus died, then God is for us. And when that final day comes, there will be no condemnation. There will be no judgment because Christ took the judgment for us because we are justified. I said I'd come back to this word. Justification is one of those kind of $5 theological words, but learn it, live it, love it. This is such an important word. Justification has two sides to it. It's declaring, God declaring righteousness. So if you're justified, he has declared you are righteous. But it is also, the second half of it is that not only have we been declared righteous so that we don't get God's wrath, but that declaration of righteousness includes that we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. So that's why we talk about Jesus' life for us and death for us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. Just as we hide under Christ's perfect life, we hide under his death. He looks at us and he sees us as justified. Those declared righteous. No more sin, but instead righteous. As if we've always obeyed. Of course, the problem is, if we're honest, we tend not to approach God with this knowledge all the time. I know maybe I'm the only one. I don't think so. But I think we more often than not, we tend to default to this idea that we have to do something to get that access to God. That in order for God to be for us, for him to keep his love for us, it, you know, on bad days, just, you know, he might not be for me so much today. But that's why justification is so important. And that's why you have this legal language here of him declaring justification. Here's an illustration. Again, I stole this from Carson. This is the best one I've heard of explaining what this looks like. How many of you have had days like this where you wake up and you, you feel a sore throat coming on? And you've got a headache. And you look at the clock. And you're an hour and a half past your alarm. And you're going to be late. So you jump up. And you, you can't find clean socks that match. So you're going to look like a goober walking around the office. And your clothes are dirty. So you throw on what you have. And you're all wrinkly. And you, you run downstairs. You don't get breakfast. You go out to the car. And you start the car. And it's good, good, good. I was going to change the battery yesterday. And so you get into the office. You know, at least an hour late. And the boss walks up and says, oh, I'm so glad you decided to grace us with your presence. So kind of you to, you know, arrive at the job I pay you to be at. Well, if you had decided to be here on time, you would have learned that we lost three accounts this last week and we're going to be making cuts. I'll let you know in the next few weeks. Perfect. Your headache's still raging, so you go for some coffee in a little while and some guy walks up and says, you're, you're a Christian, right? Uh, yeah. You see where this is going. Uh, I had a question for you. Sorry, dude, I got a project. I'm late. You bite his head off, and he goes running away, you know, with a tail whimper between his legs like a dog that's just been kicked or something. And you sit back down, and you're just like, I just got to get through the day. But when you get home, your spouse is gone because grandma is sick, and they're over helping grandma. There might be leftovers in the fridge. Nope, it's stale cereal. That's all you got. And the kids decided they're all demon-possessed tonight, and they keep trying to kill each other. And so when you go to bed that night, what does your prayer look like? God, today was horrible, and I didn't do so well. That, that was a lie. I was horrible today. Help me to be better tomorrow. Bless Grandma. I hope she feels better. Amen. You ever have a day like that? None of you. Wow. <laughs> Maybe all of your days are like this. Where you wake up, and you're like, 
I'm so rested. And you hear birds chirping and the sun's shining through. And you're like, it's an hour before your alarm. And you're like, oh, great. And then the smell of bacon is coming from the fridge, the kitchen. And your dry cleaning is hanging there, freshly pressed and socks that match. And you go downstairs, you have a great little breakfast chat with the family, head off to work, get there early. And the boss sees you and he says, oh, putting in some extra time. Well, you know, I do what I can. Well, we just bought, booked two new accounts. We might need a manager for this new department. Oh, well, yeah. You might be up for running it. Oh, maybe. Well, just let me know. I'm here to help. And you go over to the, the water cooler coffee area, and that same poor sap you clobbered a couple weeks ago limps up, and you're like, oh, and this time, though, <laughs> this time, you testify with grace and winsomeness and clarity. Where do you go to church? Oh, the gathering. Where do you guys meet? Oh, I'll be there on Sunday. I'll introduce you to some people. We have a welcome bag. It's great. And you get home, and dinner was five-star. And you're like, I've never even had a meal that good anywhere. This is wonderful. And there's, there's just repartee around the dinner tables, wonderful. And family devotions is superb. And the, the children have insights into the depths of the Trinity, and it's glorious. <laughs> when you go to bed that night, what does your prayer sound like? Eternal and majestic Heavenly Father, <laughs> I bow before your grace. And the marvel at your magnificence and munificence and you're praying for justification and all oh, their missionary relatives six times removed. Right? Anybody have a day like that? And you go to bed justified. Friend, here's the problem. On both days, hear me clearly, on both days, we've been utter pigs because we have presumed to think that our access to God is based on something we did. It's based on something in our day. If God is for us, no one can be against us. Not myself in my bad day. Because my access is granted through Christ alone. And nothing can separate me from his love. Not even me. So my good day doesn't get me closer. But my bad day doesn't push me further away. And so, if you're a Christian, what we're saying you acknowledge is there's nothing you can do but to accept what he has done. And if you're not a Christian, you want to, what does this look like to repent and believe? I'll be up here up front, some others will as well. We'd love to talk with you. But that is what Romans 8 is dealing with. That the Spirit keeps. The Spirit who regenerates is the Spirit who keeps. That from eternity past, the Father's plan was to send the Son. And he sent the Son to live and die in our place. And now he intercedes in our place. And did you catch from last week's passage, you can go back and look, it says the Spirit intercedes because the Son intercedes. So the whole Trinity is working for his people. And nothing can separate us from his love. We're off of the hamster wheel of self-salvation. It's gone. We stand before him, justified. And so that's why we're going to sing these lyrics to close the service. It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. So raise a shout with ragged voice. And go bravely into battle knowing that he has won the war. It is finished. He has done it. Would you pray with me?